What do we know? What don't we know? And what do we believe? These three questions actually come from a lesson and a youth program designed through the Episcopal Church. came out of a local church in North Carolina, but has been shared for a couple decades now, called Journey to Adulthood. These questions are guiding questions for our faith life. What do we know? What don't we know? And what do we believe? Interestingly enough, they actually are reflected in our gospel lesson this morning. You may have noticed that these stories stand in stark contrast, this one with the one from Nicodemus just last week. The story of Nicodemus visiting Jesus at night is in the third chapter of John, and the story of the Samaritan woman at the well is in the fourth chapter of John. They're placed right beside each other to highlight a few very particular things. Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the night. The Samaritan woman meets Jesus at noon, when the sun is at the, its highest place in the sky. In the story of Nicodemus, he is a Jewish leader. He's on the inside. In the story of the Samaritan woman, she is on the outside. In the story of Nicodemus, he has a name. In the story of the woman at the well, she's known only by her gender. These stories are placed right beside each other to highlight a point that is placed in the story of Nicodemus but remains true and rings true throughout the whole Gospel of John. That Christ came in the world not to condemn the world but in order that the whole world might be saved through him. That's the 17th verse of the third chapter of John. It follows John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him may not perish but have eternal life. And the next verse says, For God sent his son into the world not to condemn the world, but in order that the whole world might be saved through him. And so here we are. The woman at the well, on the outside, Jesus is bringing his life-giving water to her. And we see her journey through knowing, when, through recognizing what she doesn't know, and through articulating her belief. We see the story of her faith, how it unfolds. At the very beginning, we see what she knows. She knows that Jews and Samaritans hold nothing in common. She knows that this well was given by their ancestor Jacob and that her ancestors have worshipped on this mountain since that time. She knows that the Messiah is coming, and she knows that Jesus has told her everything she has ever done. What she doesn't know is whether or not Jesus is the Messiah. And what she believes is that the Messiah is coming and will be the Savior of her life. So here we see these three points made. What do we know? What don't we know? And what do we believe? I think we can talk about belief as something that we set our heart upon, something that we trust our heart into. And to know is when our heart is rooted in something. To know is something that is immovable. It's as irrefutable as scientific evidence. It's as certain as facts. It's as immovable as matter when we know something. 
and our heart plays a part in both. To believe is to set our heart upon something. To know is to have our heart rooted in something. We see this journey of faith in our gospel lesson today. Now I must say that the scripture lessons appointed for this Sunday ring true in my own life and have guided me in my own journey of faith. Both the First Testament reading and this gospel lesson. As you might recall, the First Testament is all about God's relationship with God's people and that God does not abandon them. Sometimes he's with them in his anger, but he does not abandon them. He is in intimate relationship with his people and in that relationship conveys to them his faithfulness, that he cares for their needs. And we see this most pointedly in the story of the Exodus. We read a portion of it today. Here, the Hebrew people have been taken out of Egypt with the promise of a promised land. Moses told them that God was calling them out of slavery into freedom. And they believed, finally, Moses' words after all of those plagues and followed Moses into the wilderness. And there were several occasions where they questioned whether or not this was a good idea, partly in the pursuit of the Egyptians after them, but they made it across the sea. So, okay, this must have been the right choice. But then they get into the wilderness, and there's no food or drink. And so they cry out to God, and they receive manna. And they cry out to God again, and they receive quail. And so we come to the portion of the story where they've come to Moses, again angry by what they have left behind and the little that they seem to have out here in the wilderness. And they say to him one of their favorite lines, did you bring us out here just to kill us? Is that the whole point of this? If you read this story in Exodus, you'll see this common question to Moses. Is that your point? You just brought us all out here to die. And so they complain to Moses because there is no water. And Moses sends the complaint up the line. He takes it to God and says, what am I supposed to do with these people? They're about to stone me. There is no water. And God says to him, take the staff, go to this rock and hit the rock, and I will make water gush forward from the rock. And that's the little snippet we have in our First Testament lesson today. They named the place after the question, is God with us or not? Well, this story is part of my own story. I'll share with you an experience of my own life that was already 10 years ago. I date most of my stories by the age of my children or the house that we lived in. That helps me get a general gist about when it happened. And when this happened, Beatrice was just a few months old. So it was definitely 10 years ago maybe 11. We had an infant. She was the youngest of three. Vivian was three years old and Gabe was five. And I was thinking about the fall and how I was going to make sure that they were cared for even as we kept to our work and made all of this work, Michael and I. I was the full-time assistant at a church there in New Jersey where we lived, just right up the way. Michael was commuting into the city every day, but it was a short commute, only about 40 minutes. And we had three children that needed to be cared for as we were at our work. Gabe would be going to full-day kindergarten. Vivian would be going to half-day nursery school at the church where I served for free. 
and then Beatrice was just a few months old. And it occurred to me the only way I could really make this happen is to hire someone to come into our home and to care for them. Someone who can manage Beatrice's infant needs and then leave the house in the middle of the day to pick up the three-year-old and drive her back home and then leave the house again at the end of school to pick up Gabe from the bus and bring him home and knew how to manage the various needs of these various ages. Now, I'd never had someone come into our house to watch our kids, and I was a little anxious about this. So a friend lent me a book on hiring a nanny, and it had all kinds of best practices and good advice and things to check out, interview questions, references, all this kind of stuff. And so I interpreted the wisdom of that book into what I needed. I wanted someone who definitely had some awareness of young children, and not just in the extent that she could keep the house clean and make sure Beatrice's diaper was changed, but I wanted someone who knew about the various stages of young people. Because my infant was going to be changing rapidly over these months, and I wanted someone who was aware of what a six-month-old was interested in, and a seven-month-old, and an eight-month-old, and what a three-year-old is interested in, and what a kindergartner is interested in. And so my list began to grow of what I was looking for in this person. Also, I wanted someone who was, could work for this small amount of money that we had. Every paycheck we came to zero, and so I only had a certain amount of money to pay this person to watch our children. And I decided that I would pay her Social Security, and I would do it above board, if you will. And so that meant her take-home was going to be even less, and I then wasn't really sure who would work for this amount of money. But I put the ad out there and started the process. And lo and behold, I had two people who were interested in this position. And one of them sounded very promising. She'd been a nanny before. She had a bachelor's or maybe it was an associate's degree in early childhood education. She came with raving references. And she had a two-year-old that she wanted to bring along with her, which assuaged some of my stress about the low pay that I had to offer. And so we were all set for her to come for our meeting time, which was really the final piece in finishing this hire. And that, that morning, as I was anticipating her, I was going through my list. Did I tell her about? Did I tell her about? Yes, right, yes, right. And then it occurred to me two things that I forgot to mention. One is that we lived above a restaurant, and so it was a second-floor apartment walk-up, which meant she would be schlepping her two-year-old and my infant down the stairs a few times a day and bringing more kids with her each time. I forgot to tell her about that. And I also forgot to tell her about the fact that we have a boxer, a great dog. But some people are a little intimidated by their exuberance and their square jaw and the fact that our dog's face was going to be directly opposite her two-year-old's face. So I was a little stressed about that. She arrived. I welcomed her in. I confessed about the second floor that I forgot to tell her about that. She said, oh, that's no problem. We live in the second floor of a two-family, so I'm going up and down the stairs all the time. I thought, oh, good. We come into the, house, into the apartment, and we're talking a little further, and I have the dog in the other room. I said, I also forgot to tell you about our dog. I said, we have a boxer. And she said, my in-laws breed boxers. I was dumbfounded. 
These two last pieces that I thought were surely the reasons that this was not going to work after all of the rest of the list had been addressed. I couldn't believe that these two pieces that I thought would be the linchpin of it all falling apart, and it didn't. So later, somehow, I'm not exactly sure of the timing on it, but it was very close to her leaving. I said, oh my gosh, I can't believe this is going to work. And God said to me, Whitney, did I not make water come out of a rock? (laughs) Did I not make water come out of a rock? And I said, in my defense, trying to justify my uncertainty, I said, and you can laugh because I do, I said, but this is harder. (laughs) That story of God's presence and faithfulness was something I had believed. And in that moment, it became something that I knew. That God is with God's people. Not always as we expect, but definitely faithfully. What do we know? What don't we know? And what do we believe? These are the questions of our faith life. These are the questions that come again and again as we journey in life and as life interrupts that neat order of things that we have and calls us into a life of faith. These questions can apply to times of loss as we face what it is to live without someone. What do we know? What do we not know? What do we believe? Perhaps those questions might be answered, at least one answer for each of them, when we consider what it is to lose a person in our life. What we know is that life will never be the same again. What we don't know is how life will be. And what we believe is that God is in all of life. What do we know? What don't we know? And what do we believe? Bringing these questions, allowing ourselves to sit with these questions, bringing them to our community of faith, gives us the way to allow our faith to grow, for God to grow in our lives, for our faith to develop and change as our lives change. This is what happened to the woman at the well. She knew what she knew, she knew what she didn't know, and she knew what she believed. And she said to the people, her people, this can't be the Messiah, can it? He can't be the Messiah, can he? Come and see the man who told me everything I've ever done. Come and see, she said to them. The last time we heard those words in the gospel were at the very beginning. When Jesus is coming among John the Baptist and his followers, and some of John the Baptist's followers come up to Jesus and say, where are you staying? And Jesus says to them, come and see. Come and see. See how the Father is acting in our lives. Where is God in the midst of this? Come and see the one who has given me life-giving water so that you might know it. Not only believe, but know the Savior of the world. Amen.